Today's sermon passage can be found on page 965 in the Bibles underneath your chairs. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 18. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lives over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we continue on this morning in our study of the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians, you might remember where we left off last week. Uh, The Apostle Paul was writing about his ministry to the church. And uh, if you remember, he compared it to a triumphal procession, a parade celebrating the the victory of the Lord Jesus over sin and death. He compared his ministry to being an incense bearer. Remember that image that he spreads the aroma of Christ everywhere he goes. It's a, he says, a beautiful smell to some people, to those who are being saved, but it's the stench of death to others, to those who are perishing. And at the end of our passage last week, Paul asked the question, in light of all these things, he said, who is sufficient for these things? That is to say, who can possibly handle this massive responsibility, carrying a message of eternal life through faith in Christ out into a world where it will be both damningly rejected and by some savingly embraced? And the answer we saw last week, or we thought about last week in a very real sense is no one. No one on their own could possibly do the work that Paul and his team had been called to do. No one could bear that burden. But as we see in our passage for this morning, that's not actually the whole story. There were some in the church at Corinth, we know, that doubted Paul. And they doubted the legitimacy of his ministry. There were false teachers in the congregation who were working to undermine the Corinthians' confidence in the apostle. And so as a, as a result, Paul doesn't want to leave the wrong impression here. When he asks, who is sufficient for these things, right, sort of rhetorically expecting the answer, no one, he doesn't want to leave the impression that his ministry, therefore, lacks legitimacy or divine sanction. So he begins with a defense of his ministry, really that goes, starts in, in chapter 2, verse 17, and goes through verse 6 of chapter 3. That's where we'll get started this morning. My plan is just to walk through the passage 
and trying to get a grip on what Paul is saying. Maybe as Ian was reading, you got a sense that Paul's sort of meandering back and forth across the Old Testament, sort of grabbing some things that might seem strange to us. I think if we follow his line of thinking, we're going to see that it all comes to a crescendo there in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. But we kind of have to get the rest of the chapter under our belt uh, to be able to understand it. So let's start in chapter 2. In verse 17, we see the beginning of Paul's defense of himself. He says there, For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So you can see it's a shots-fired situation right out of the gate. Right, Paul wants to make a comparison between the work that, that he's been doing, the work that he and his team have been accomplishing, and that of his opponents. He calls them their peddlers of God's word. Uh, the sense is that these false teachers treat the message of Christ, that message that Paul goes around spreading like fragrant incense, they treat that message like a trinket uh, to be hawked in a market. Right, to put it bluntly, these false teachers were in it for the money. To them, the gospel was nothing more than a means to the end of their own sort of success. It was something to be packaged and marketed and sold. And so whatever it took, whatever it needed to be done to finish the sale, that's what they were willing to do with God's word. Sadly, I think we still have these kinds of teachers with us in the church today. There are still many church leaders who in the end are in it for the prestige, for the power, for the control, or for the money. And so as a result, they distort the message. They make it a commodity that should be made attractive to the consumer. They take the message of Christ and they twist it so that it flatters the ego and, and soothes the conscience of the hearer. But in contrast to those kinds of hucksters and salesmen, Paul holds out his own ministry there in chapter 2, verse 17. He says that he and his team are men of sincerity. No ulterior motives, no spin, no changing the message to make it smell better to the world. He says also there in verse 17 that he's commissioned by God. Remember the very first verse of, of this letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul starts off by reminding them that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Right? Here's a reminder. Paul's not out there doing his own thing. He's been commissioned. He's been sent on this work by God himself. And so when he and his team spoke of Christ, they did it self-consciously, he says, they're in the sight of God, knowing that they're ultimately going to be judged by him, knowing that they're accountable to him. So Paul's explaining the character of his ministry, and there in chapter 3, verse 1, he steps back for a second. He says there, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul stops himself there. He says, am I starting to commend myself again? It could be that he's actually saying, I am commending myself again. So Greek doesn't have question marks in the same way that English does. And so it's not always clear when someone's asking a question. It has to be sort of in context. But in, in any uh, account, right, this idea of commending is actually really important in the book of 2 Corinthians. Just put a, a pin mentally in that word because if the Lord wills and allows us to get through the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to see this idea of commending and who commends who and how someone's commended to someone else is going to come up over and over in this book. In the ancient world, you would use letters of recommendation to open doors for you in a new place. So let's say you're traveling somewhere far away. You don't know anyone there, but it turns out that my brother actually lives in that city. Well, if I, if I know you're traveling, I could write a letter for you. I could write a letter that you would take with you to my brother, sort of giving it to him, and he would read it and say, okay, my brother recommends this person. He says, this is a good guy. This is a friend. Please help them out. Right? That's how things worked in a world without mass communication. Right? You, you would carry letters of recommendation with you from people that might open a door for you in a different place. And so Paul here asks a bit facetiously if he's going to need to get his letters of recommendation together. 
right? Am I going to have to sort of pull together my, the evidence for my legitimacy so I can commend myself to you, he asks the Corinthians. He clearly expects the answer to be no. Because there in verse 2, he says the Corinthians themselves are his letter of commendation. If you remember back, all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said that when he brought the gospel to Corinth, it came, he says, with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Right? The work of God in the midst of the Corinthian church through Paul's ministry, Paul says that is his letter of recommendation. Right? Even better than words on a page, he could point to them, to their changed lives as evidence of the legitimacy of his ministry. Right? It's the difference between sort of the blurb on the back of a book saying, this is a great book, and actually meeting someone whose life was changed by the book. Paul says, I don't need a letter, I've got you. He says, you are my letter of recommendation. And clearly this is a really big deal to him. Look at what he says about it. He says, he says that they're written on his heart. Right? There's, a, there's a, an intimate connection between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth. He, he loves them dearly. He says it's available for everyone to see there in verse 2. There at the beginning of verse 3, he says they're a letter from Christ. Right? The work that's been done in their midst has a divine origin. Right? Paul, he says, is just the one who's, who's delivered this letter, who, who brought it to fruition by preaching the gospel. There at the end of verse 3, he keeps this image rolling. He says, you're a letter. Right? Your status as God's people through faith in Christ is the only commendation my ministry needs. It's, it's a letter, he says, from Christ, but it's not a letter written with ink, right? Like you might have written a letter if you're like over 35, for example, with a pen and paper, right? He says, it's not a letter like that. He says, it's, it's the letter of God's work written in the spirit of the living God, right? The, the image is that this thing that's happened amongst the Corinthians is proof of God's power and activity, he says it's not a letter written on a tablet of stone, but it's written on the tablet of human hearts. That is to say, this powerful, spirit-led work of God is not external to them, but it's deep down inside them. Of course, this is exactly what God had promised in the Old Testament would happen, right? Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of a day when God would put his spirit within his people. We saw it earlier in our service in that uh, passage from the book of Joel. Right, this idea that God would pour out his spirit, that he would put his spirit in people, that he would, he would write it on their hearts. Right, Paul says that's what's, that's what's happened now. Right, God has, has written this letter on your hearts in his spirit. So hold on to that idea. I want to I finish out Paul's point here, but he's going to come back to this idea of, of tablets of stone in just a minute. Right, but Paul wraps up his thought about his qualifications here, saying, you are my letter of recommendation. He, he finishes up in verses 4 and 5. He says there, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. There in verse 4, Paul says, look, you Corinthians, the work of Christ by his spirit in you, you are the reason I'm confident. You're the reason I don't need a letter of commendation. You're the proof that I've ministered with sincerity in the sight of God. And so there in verse 5, he, he gives a surprising answer to the question that he asked back at the end of verse 16 in chapter 2. Remember he asked there, who is sufficient for these things? Well, the answer there, according to verse 5, is, is actually Paul is. Paul and his team are. But they're not sufficient in the way you might think, not in the way of self-sufficiency and self-promotion and self-reliance. Rather, he says there in verse 5 that we are not sufficient in ourselves. He says, look, we have sufficiency for the work we've been called to. We have the qualifications and the strength and the ability and the desire and the endurance that are needed for this ministry of reconciliation. But he says it comes from God himself. You see that there at the end of verse 5. We are, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Right? You see Paul's humility. You see his sort of accurate self-assessment here. He's not puffed up. He's not conceited. He's qualified. He knows he's qualified. He knows he's sufficient. But it's only because of the work of the Lord. 
It's a sufficiency that comes from God. That's the initial point that Paul's trying to make here in this passage. He says, look, I don't need to commend myself to you. You're my letter of reference. I, I have a ministry that's, that's rooted in sincerity and truth, and you're the proof of it. He says, I'm sufficient for this work, not because of anything in me, but because the Lord has made me that way. And again, remember, Paul's not just talking about himself. He, he uses the plural throughout this passage. He says, we, us, we, us. Right? He's indicating that, that he includes his co-workers, men like Timothy and Titus and Barnabas. They're also included in this ministry and in this sufficiency. What he says here isn't just true of Paul. It's not just true of apostles. But in a very real way, it's true of all Christian service. And so it's good to be instructed, to be reminded by Paul's example. Lord willing, we'll, have, we'll see a lot of opportunities to, to do this as we come through this letter together. But notice what Paul points to as the markers of authenticity when it comes to Christian work. He says it's sincerity of motivation. It's an awareness that your work is being done in the sight of God. It's speaking the gospel message with conscious dependence on the spirit of God. And so brothers and sisters, that's a, that's a good way for us to pray for one another. It's a good way especially to pray for those who serve our church through the ministry of gospel proclamation. We can't afford to take these foundational things for granted. Right? The world around us is always seeking to, to force the church into its mold, attempting to make us disciples of the marketer, the advertiser, the therapist, the politician. We need to take our cues from God's word from the apostolic example that we see here, most importantly from the, the logic and the, the rhythm and the pattern of the gospel itself. Right? If we follow a Messiah who lowered himself, who, who stooped in humility to serve others, who didn't uh, make himself seem great in ways that seemed sort of made sense to the world, well, then it follows that any kind of sincere gospel ministry should look something like that. Not like self-sufficiency or self-aggrandizement, but dependency on the power and presence of God's Spirit. Not looking towards prestige and popularity, but looking towards God working through sacrifice and suffering. That's what Paul's ministry looked like, and that's what all genuine Christian ministry ought to be. Okay, so moving on then, Paul jumps off uh, there, uh, beginning in verse 6 on what seems like a bit of a tangent. It's a glorious tangent, but it seems uh, like it doesn't really follow. Uh, there's a connection point of sorts there in verse 6. Right at the end of verse 5, Paul says their sufficiency comes from God. And then in verse 6, he continues on, still speaking of God. He says, God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul says that the sufficiency that God has given to him and to his team is specifically so that they can be ministers of a new covenant. So back in the days of Moses, God made a covenant with the people of Israel. Right? We saw that when we were studying the book of Exodus recently. Right? That covenant was, was codified in the Ten Commandments. Letters carved by the hand of God on tablets of stone. Remember I told you back in verse 3 that idea of tablets of stone was going to come up again. Well, in Jesus, in sending his son in human flesh to, to die for our sins and to rise from the dead, God inaugurated a new covenant, one that's not established simply by writing words and commands on a tablet of stone, but a covenant that's established in our hearts by the ministry of the Spirit, writing God's truth deep inside of us. And so Paul's saying that his ministry, right, the, the kind of ministry that that Paul's been made sufficient for, it belongs not to the old model, right? Not, not words carved on tablets, but he says it belongs to the new model, the spirit working powerfully in human hearts. And he says something a bit surprising there at the end of verse six. He says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It seems like Paul's saying that the old covenant ministry of Moses, right, was one that brought death Whereas the, the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit brings life. 
And if you read on, that's exactly what Paul is actually saying. Look there in verses 7 to 11. Paul says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Right, that makes sense? Clear as mud, right? Well, let's unpack it. Paul speaks there in verse 7 of the ministry of death. There in verse 9, he, he, he calls that ministry the ministry of condemnation. Right, both of those sound like sort of government agencies from the Hunger Games, right? You've got the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. Right, verse 7, it makes, Paul makes it clear he's talking about the, the law of Moses, right? Specifically, the Ten Commandments carved on letters of stone or on tablets of stone. So why does Paul call the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, why does he call it the ministry of death? Why does he call it the ministry of condemnation? Isn't the law of Moses good and, and holy from God himself? After all, God's the one who carved those words on those stone tablets. Well, of course the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. They are glorious. But what's clear is that when God's holy and perfect law comes into contact with sinful people like the Israelites and like you and like me, the result is spiritual death. The result is condemnation. The law of God can only condemn us for all of the ways that we break it. There's no way for it to bring us life because we can't keep it. It tells us not to covet, but we do. It tells us not to lie or to steal or to disrespect our parents, but we do. It tells us to reserve our devotion and our worship for the Lord alone, but we don't. And so there is only death. There is only condemnation in the law. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there's something wrong with us. In fact, you see Paul has a very high view of the law of Moses. Don't, don't get it twisted here. Paul is not saying that, that the old covenant is somehow sinful or wrong. He says there in verse 7 that it came with such glory. Right? And he brings up this strange incident that we considered back in Exodus 34. If you remember, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, sort of after being in God's presence, receiving the tablets of the law, his face shone with this bright light because he had been talking with the Lord. It was like his face was like a glow-in-the-dark toy, right? In my house, these are footballs and frisbees, right? You know how it works. You take an object, you hold it under the light for a while. Somehow, through the magic of science, it absorbs the light. Right? And then you go into the bathroom and you close the door so you're in the darkest space possible and this thing glows, right? You take the football out in, in the yard at night and you throw it and you can see it, right? It's absorbed the light and it shines it back for a while. Initially, it's bright. And then it slowly but, but perceptibly begins to fade. Moses was something like that. He would go to meet with the Lord right, on Mount Sinai or in the, the, the tent of meeting. Right? God's presence is attended with glory, this bright shining light around him. And Moses would come out reflecting something of that glory. He would be shining. And so he'd have to put a veil over his face to kind of protect the people of Israel from seeing that glory. Over time, the glow would fade. But each time Moses would meet with the Lord, it would sort of be topped up again. And he'd be bright for a while. Okay, so why on earth is Paul bringing that up? Why is, he, why is he referencing that story? Well, if you look there in verse 8, he says, look, if the ministry of the law, right, this covenant that could only bring death to sinners, if that was so glorious and so amazing that the giving of this law meant that Moses had to cover up his face because it was shining, Paul says, how much more will the ministry of life 
by God's Holy Spirit, the new covenant ministry, be attended with glory? If that ministry of death was incredibly glorious, how much more will the new covenant ministry be glorious? He repeats that same point there in verse 11. He says, the old covenant came with glory, but the new covenant that's replaced it is even more glorious. There in verse 9, he says, look, if there was glory in this old covenant ministry that led to condemnation, how much better the new covenant? Paul calls it the the ministry of righteousness. He says, how much more will it exceed the old covenant in glory? Verse 9, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You see, the key to understanding what Paul's saying here is that phrase, the ministry of righteousness. The problem with the old covenant was that it presented righteousness to you that was external to you. It was outside of you. It was letters on a tablet that showed you what the righteousness of God looked like. But there was no power there to actually make you righteous. And so the only thing it could bring to you was condemnation and death. There was no way of getting that law off that tablet and into your heart. But Jesus came to solve that righteousness problem. The Son of God in human flesh, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. The law never condemned him. It never brought him death because he was able to keep it. He was perfectly righteous. But in love, he gave up his life on the cross for us. There, the perfectly innocent one took on our guilt He took the death and condemnation that the law brought to us. He took it on himself. And having paid that price, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death three days later. And so now, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, when we turn to the Lord, as Paul says there in verse 16, we receive his righteousness as a gift. Our righteousness problem, the, the death and condemnation that the law brings to us, is now solved. Because Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Not only that, but he sends his spirit to us. The spirit comes and transforms us. It gives us new lives, new hearts, a new desire to actually keep the law of God and to do what he commands. The spirit comes and gives us power to obey. Before, God's commands were death to me. I couldn't keep them. And if I'm being honest, I didn't want to, right? It was something I had to be forced into. It was something I would obey only if I knew there was a punishment attached to it. What my heart really wanted was to lie and to steal and to disrespect and to covet and to lust. But when the spirit of God comes to us, it transforms us, it changes us. And now we want what God commands You can see why Paul says there in verse 9 that the glory of the new covenant ministry of righteousness exceeds the glory of the old covenant. In fact, there in verse 10, he says the old covenant has come to have no glory at all anymore. That's an extraordinary statement. Think about who's saying that. Think about who's writing that. This is Paul. He was a Pharisee. The law of Moses, the old covenant was his entire life. But now that he's come to understand what God has done in Christ, now that he understands the new covenant ministry of righteousness in God's spirit, he says that that old covenant has no glory at all. As he says there in verse 11, it's been brought to an end. Think of the old covenant. Think of the, the law of Moses like a constellation of stars in the sky, glorious and bright. But when the sun comes up, the stars don't, cease to be bright and glorious, but their brilliance is completely eclipsed by a much brighter light, by a greater glory. In the same way, the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, it's good, but it's, it's, out, it's being outshined by the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that's very interesting. All of it's very important for our understanding and application of the Old Testament. But, but we have to ask, what does it have to do with Paul's larger point about the validity of his ministry? Why is he sort of going back to the Old Testament and talking about Moses' shining face? Well, he kind of gets back on his thought there in verse 12. 
He says there in verses 12 and 13, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That is to say, Paul has such a strong and powerful hope. Right, this hope of righteousness, not outside us, but inside us. That he can minister the, the message of this covenant with great boldness. Whereas Moses had to cover his face, lest people see that the glory was fading and coming to an end. Paul says, I get to minister with no such concern. I have no worries because this new covenant hope is wonderful and enduring. He says, so I have boldness. I'm, I'm ministering, he says, out of a position of strength. But that, of course, raises a question. If the new covenant in Jesus is so far superior to the old covenant in Moses, then why did the Jewish people of Paul's day reject the Messiah? Why did they reject Jesus when he came to them? Why don't they flock to this brighter light and better covenant? Well, Paul explains there in verses 14 to 15. He says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You see the problem, even back in the Old Covenant times, uh, we read in the, the book of Deuteronomy that the people of Israel responded to the law of God with a hard heart. Paul says here they have hardened minds. There's no, there's no softness, no openness to embrace what God is doing in Christ. Paul says it's like they have a veil over their hearts. Just as there was a veil to keep them, to see the, keep them from seeing the glory of the Lord in the face of Moses, so their hearts have a sort of spiritual veil across them. There's a barrier that prevents them from perceiving what they need to perceive in order to put their faith in Christ. While most of the Jewish people remained unable to see the glory of the new covenant, Paul does say there is hope there in verse 16. He does say when one turns to the Lord, that veil, the veil across our heart that keeps us from perceiving the glory of Christ, he says when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. See, when Moses would go in to meet with Yahweh, either on Mount Sinai or in the tent of meeting, he would take down the veil. In the same way, Paul says, whenever anyone turns to God in faith, when anyone comes into his presence through Christ, that, that veil is lowered, the barrier is removed, and they're able to see what they couldn't see before. That experience leads Paul to say there in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul says there in verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. And that's confusing, and maybe you think, well, maybe he didn't mean to say that. But there in verse 18, he says again, the Lord who is the Spirit. And so what's going on? What is he, what's he talking about here? Well, when Paul speaks about the Lord, he's almost always in his letters speaking specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Usually when Paul talks about God, he's talking about God the Father. When he says the Lord, he means the Lord Jesus and when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But here, I think this is an exception. Paul says the Lord, but I don't think he specifically means to reference the second person of the Trinity here. In context, it's pretty clear that he's still referring back to this interaction that Moses had with God in the tent of meeting in Exodus. And so what he's saying here is that those references to God, to, to Yahweh, back in Exodus 34 are really references to the Holy Spirit being present with the people of Israel. The Lord, that is Yahweh, the God that Moses went to meet with, Paul says, is the Spirit. When Moses would go in to speak with God, Paul's telling us it was specifically the Holy Spirit. It was the second, I'm sorry, it was the third person of the Trinity that he was speaking to. And Paul's point here in verse 17 is that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is an experience of great freedom. Uh, the freedom here is in the context of being veiled or, or, or spiritually sort of covered. Right? Apart from the Spirit's work, we are, we are veiled. We are unable to see. Our sin blinds us. 
Our sin makes us think that real life is, is found outside of God and his commands. Our sin convinces us that, that rebellion and getting away from God, being left to indulge our anger, our lust, our greed, our selfishness, we think in our sin that that's freedom. But Paul says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is real freedom. Because he brings a desire to do the things that you must do. And that's real freedom. The illustration I like to use is, is chopping wood. Okay, if I, were, if I were kidnapped and my captors forced me to chop wood all day, I would hate it. it. It would be miserable slavery. I'd always be looking for a way to get out of the work or a way to escape. But when I go in my backyard and chop wood, which depending on how the football games go today, I might do this afternoon. When I go in my backyard and I chop wood for my own purposes or for my family, Right, that same work that in another context would be drudgery and misery becomes a joy to me. Right, my family loves having a fire in the fireplace. I love it too. It makes me happy to do things that make them happy because I love them. Right, that, that work that would be drudgery if, if I were sort of forced to do it is actually a joy when I want to do it. Right, that's something like what the Spirit does in us. He, he frees us to want to do the law of God. He removes the veil. He brings us into God's family so that the work of obedience is no longer slavery. It's not a chore. It's not a burden. But it's who we are now. It's deep inside us. It's a delight. It's, it's real freedom. And that brings us to the conclusion of Paul's thought. This is what he's been driving towards, I think, in this whole chapter there in verse 18. He says there, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul makes it clear here where he's been going with all this talk about Moses and old covenants and new covenants and veils and glory. Right? We're not sort of wandering down rabbit trails here, but we've been building to this point. Paul's saying, remember the experience of Moses? He'd go up Mount Sinai, he'd go into the tent of meeting, he'd drop the veil off his face, and he would have this direct, unmediated, face-to-face, -face, uncovered experience of God's glory. And that exposure to God's glory, to his holiness and purity and brilliance and beauty, it transformed Moses. It made him shine. So here Paul's saying that in the new covenant, the, the more glorious covenant, as a follower of Christ, as someone who has turned to the Lord, he says, you're, you're just like Moses. Right? Isn't that interesting? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, look, the very, the very best of us are just like Moses. Right? Right? Maybe, maybe the top 1% of high-achieving Christians are just like Moses. No, it's not just a few of us, friends. He says, we all are being transformed. We all are beholding the glory of God. We all are having an experience like what Moses had. I just stop for a second and think how incredible that is. Right, Moses is on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament heroes. Right, he might be the number one seed if you're having a tournament. Right, he had astounding access to God. He experienced amazing things. And Paul says, hey, Christian, we're all just like him. In fact, in the context of this chapter, it's pretty clear that as a new covenant believer, as someone united to Christ by faith, you've actually got more better privileges than Moses had. And so you're probably thinking, what is Paul talking about? I've never walked into a tent and met with God face to face. I've never shone forth with his glory in such a way that I had to put a veil over my face. And if we're being honest, on my best days, I feel like a C plus, B minus Christian. How am I anything like Moses? Well, Paul's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit here. He says there at the end of verse 18, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And what the Spirit does for us is bring the presence of God to everyone who turns to Christ in faith. So that we have direct, he says there, with unveiled face, we have a direct experience of his glory. 
Okay, so how does that happen? Well, Paul says there that it happens as we are beholding the glory of the Lord. Right, that word behold isn't one that we use very often, but it's important here. The, the Greek word that Paul uses has the sense of looking intently at something, studying something as in a mirror. Paul says here, part of the Spirit's ministry to us as believers is to enable us to, to constantly peer into the Lord's glory. Right, we don't need to take a break. We don't need to cover our faces. We don't need to leave the Lord's presence. He is always with us by his spirit. And so we have constant access to his glory. And that's amazing, but Paul's not close to being finished. He says, when we do that, when we behold the glory of the Lord by the work of his spirit, Paul says, we're actually being transformed. What are we being transformed into? Paul says there in verse 18, into the same image. He says, we are being transformed into the same image, right? Into the image of the glory that we're beholding, right? Just as Moses was changed so that he shone with the glory of the Lord, so Christian, you, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as you behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to reflect that glory, to shine it forth. Paul's going to unpack this idea over the next couple of chapters. But, but suffice it to say that this is not an external transformation, right? We're not talking about your skin glowing. We're talking about an internal change. Our, our, our faces don't glow, but our lives do. All of this is a reality, Paul says, that progresses over the course of our Christian lives. Paul says it's a transformation from, he says in verse 18, one degree of glory to another. Or, or depending on your translation, from one degree of glory to the next. Right? This is not something that's completed all at once, but it's progressive. Perhaps at any given moment, you might not feel like you're reflecting the glory of the Lord very well, but hopefully you can see over time how this has been an increasing reality in your life, that you hate your sin more, that you love obedience more, that you look more like the Lord Jesus than you did 10 years ago. And in the end, if you... If you flip to the end of the book, you see that all of our stories, everyone who's united with Christ, your story ends in a new heaven, in a new earth, where God's glory shines in all of its brilliance and all sin is done away with. Christian, your story ends with this process of transformation finally being complete because there in the new heavens and new earth, you will shine gloriously, brightly, like, like a flawless mirror that's been polished until it's perfectly clear. Right? Only then will this process of, of transformation be finished. And Christian, doesn't your heart long for that? Think about your life. Think about your struggles. Think about your cares. Doesn't that sound like freedom? To be freed from sin? Freed from flaws, freed from imperfections, freed from sinful and twisted desires and impulses, free to be exactly who you were created to be, the image and reflection of God's glory. Brothers and sisters, that's what God is at work doing in our midst through his Holy Spirit. And so as we conclude this morning, I just want to point out how that transformation happens in our daily lives. Yes, it's completed when God makes all things new, but what does this process of transformation look like on Monday morning for you? What does it look like for us right here, right now? Well, again, we have to remember it is the work of the Lord who is the Spirit. That does not mean that we're passive in the process. It's not something that we sit back and just wait for it to happen. Instead, Paul says we're transformed in this way as we are beholding the glory of the Lord. Right, as we behold the Lord, right, as we spend time with him, as we observe him, as we delight in his ways and his works, it's in that beholding that we're transformed. Right, you've seen this phenomenon before. You spend a lot of time with someone, you pick up their mannerisms, right? Married couples start to use expressions and phrases, right, that are the same. Americans living in England begin to speak with an accent. Right? They start to call the, their phone a mobile. They call the trunk the boot. Right? When I first started preaching, I sounded a lot like the pastor who'd been my mentor for a decade. 
I once went to a, a Christian bookstore out in this remote part of, of, of Denver, on the outskirts of Denver. Uh, my mentor had, had the good sense to marry a woman from Colorado, and so I followed him in that same path and married a woman from Colorado. And so he would go out and visit his in-laws, and I would go out and visit my in-laws. And, and he said, look, there's this great sort of used Christian bookstore in this random part of the town behind a dog racing track. And he said, you got to go there when you're in, in Denver and get books. Right? This is before the Internet was a thing, and you could just order anything you wanted. And so I would go out there on, on Christmas break when we would go to visit the in-laws and I would make a special trip to go to this bookstore and I would buy all of these books and I'd ship them back to DC. And I remember after maybe the third or fourth year doing this, the, this guy said, so you know, where are you from? I'm from DC. He said, this might sound strange, but does your dad come in here sometimes? <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's like, no, he's like, there's this guy from DC that comes in and buys like the exact same books every year, right? As that you buy, right? It's just, Hey, I'd spent enough time around this person that, that his ways rubbed off on me, that his mannerisms rubbed off on me, his taste in books rubbed off on me. Right? It's, it's interesting, even some of the guys that have gone out from our church have said, look, people told me I sound just like you, right? which is a scary thing. It's just how human beings are. Right? We take in and we reflect something of, of the people around us, the people we spend time with. Right? You might have heard it put this way. You become what you behold. Right? You become what you behold. In the same way, Paul says, as we spend time beholding the Lord, we will increasingly reflect his image and his glory. That's the work of the Spirit. But again, it's not something that we're, we're passive in. We have a role to play. You, Christian, become what you behold. Whatever it is that you behold, whatever it is you stare at all day, whatever it is you contemplate and study and make time for and read about and listen to and watch, that's what you become. And so this amazing ministry of transformation that the Spirit is working in us, it comes in the context of us beholding the Lord. And the good news is the Lord has actually provided ways for us to do that. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to be clever. God has told us how we can behold him. You don't need to go to some mountaintop retreat center. You don't need any equipment or special skills or gear. But he's given you his Holy Spirit as a guide. He's given you his spirit to empower this work. And he's given you the means to behold him. Right? You behold the Lord as you read about him in his word. Right? There you see his glory on full display. Right? In God's word, his, his glory is, is held up for us like a brilliant diamond in a perfect setting on the sort of black velvet cloth that the jewelers use to make it look particularly bright. Right? In the Bible, we see what is glorious about God. The things that we might not ever dream were true of him if he didn't reveal it. That he is so good that he is so loving, so merciful, so compassionate. In God's word, we see his kindness for his enemies. We see his hatred for sin. We see his beauty, his creativity. And so as we read God's word, not just to check a box, but to know him, to understand him, to stare intently at his ways and at his works, we, we behold him. And the spirit transforms us more and more into his glorious image. Brothers and sisters, you behold the Lord as you participate in the life of the church. This is, in many ways, the point of us gathering every Sunday. We are here to behold the Lord together. Again, to read about his ways, right? to hear someone preach about what God says about his ways, to, to contemplate them together, to consider them deeply, to let them percolate down into our hearts and then to respond together as a church family in, in worship and praise. Right? This is the goal of the, the men's group that meets every other Thursday. This is the point of the women's Bible studies, the Tuesday, Tuesday lunch break book club, the small groups that we have, the gospel project for kids, youth ministry, I-55. Right? All of those are, are opportunities and ways for us to behold the Lord, right? to behold his glory so that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And of course, we behold the Lord as we come to his table. I think the Lord's Supper is a perfect way to apply what Paul says here to our lives. Right? If you are in Christ, 
And the Spirit of God has led you to turn to the Lord in faith. Right there in verse 16, that veil is removed from your heart. You've experienced the glory of the ministry of righteousness. And so you can come to the Lord's table and behold him here in all of his glory. Right In his love, the Lord has revealed himself so that we might behold him. We don't have to guess what he's like because Jesus has come and he has shown us. And so here at the table, we have the glory of God on display for us. In the great gift of his son. In the bread representing the broken body of Christ. In the cup representing the blood of Christ shed for us. If you want an unveiled look at the glory of God, brothers and sisters, here it is. And so let's come together now. Let's apply the passage by coming to the table. Not simply because that's what we do at the end of the service. Not simply because it gives you warm thoughts and feelings. But let's come and behold our God. Now a few things before we celebrate. First, this invitation to come to the Lord's table is for those who have, in Paul's words, turned to the Lord. So if you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't turned to him in faith, then we're very glad that you're here with us this morning. You're really welcome in our midst. We're, we're very pleased that you're here. But we would ask you not to participate in this part of our service in terms of coming down uh, front and taking the bread and the cup, because it's a celebration really of something that's not yet true of you. Instead, we'd encourage you to, to take time, uh, ask the Lord to reveal his glory to you. Ask him to, to remove any veil from your heart so that you can understand what is so glorious about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if you are a follower of Christ, but you're not a member of this particular local church, we believe the Lord's Supper is for all Christians who have repented of their sins and put their trust in, in Christ and who have demonstrated that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized, and who are connected in membership to a church that preaches uh, the message of the gospel. So if you've, if you've been baptized and you're a member of another church that preaches the gospel and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, well, then we'd be delighted if you'd join us this morning as a, a celebration of the unity we have with every gospel-loving church. The Apostle Paul cautions the church, right, this coming and beholding. It's a glorious celebration, but it's also a serious one. It's not something to be taken lightly or, or entered into casually. And so Paul tells the church to examine yourself before you come to the table. So I'm going to invite David to come up now and lead us in confessing our sins together, uh, and then I'll lead us in taking the supper. So David. David.